Steve Lee started skiing at the age of three. By 18, he was at the Sarajevo Winter Olympics. I by chance bumped into him at Falls Creek and had the good fortune to hear his story. I hope you enjoy it. Steve Lee, how are you? I'm very well. Thanks very for having well. me in your house. Pleasure, pleasure, welcome. Contrasina. It's a soupy old day outside, so it's a perfect day to sit down and have a chat. Well, I thought we were going to be able to get a view of the side of the mountain, or yeah. at least the chairlifts. Well, maybe by the time we're done. Yeah, <laughs> Comes and goes up here, the, the views. They can be beautiful one minute and can't see your hand in front of your face the next. Nature of the mountains. That's it. Um, I was directed to bump into you by Michael Whips. Yeah. He mentioned you in a podcast that I did with him recently. Yeah. And I was kind of fascinated by what he said, how you made it look easy <laughs> um, in comparison to all those guys standing there looking at that jump, shitting themselves. And, well, well, I was shitting myself too. Yeah. <laughs> but you didn't let on. You didn't let on. Yeah, and I guess, look, you know, my, my background in 10 years racing World Cup downhill where you, there's a lot of fear that you face in that sport um, and you can't completely bury it. You've got to acknowledge it and, and run with it and you use it as a... You know, use it as a tool to mostly benefit what you're doing, but sometimes it can get the better of you. But that I remember that day, and I washed it myself. Really? <laughs> oh yeah, okay. it was a massive. Oh, well, he'll probably be happy to hear a that. A massive booter, and and uh, when they said you got to basically tuck it from the top, and I remember coming in and just looking at this ramp, going, "Fuck, I'm going to land in the lake if I hit this thing at this speed." So I washed a little bit, and the first time I just knuckled the landing, and then the second time I it was a sweet flight. But they're amazing. Yeah, they're amazing. Uh, bits of technology and, and sport, you know, you just have this massive hang time in the air once you get the takeoff speed right in the landing, mm. you know, you know exactly how much time you have in there. For those guys to do the tricks, and I didn't do anything through the air, just pull a nice sweet air and, but air time's fun. Yeah, well I can not identify with that is from a skiing point of view, but yeah. the small jumps that I might do on a mountain bike, I yeah. get it, it's fun. That moment <laughs> of peace when you're floating through the air, yeah, if you yeah. know you got the landing right, and that's the key. If you I think in any of those gravity sports, when you hit a hit something and you fly through there, you can see exactly where and what you're going to land on. So if you know it's going to be a sweet landing, you're relaxed, and if it's not looking so sweet, then it's a different story. When I've been on that chairlift at Ruin Castle watching those guys, it's awe-inspiring, really. Yeah. The ones that make it look easy. Oh, yeah. And they do, don't they? It's, just it's so nice to so watch. So relaxed, and the motion through the air, and what they can achieve. Yeah, I was, you know, in, with my Olympic commentating, career I was at Sochi and had the day off and went up to watch the men's slope style ski uh no border and ski slope style and oh, it was just you can't imagine the human beings can do what they do you know they're hitting ramps at 90 k's an hour flying six, 60 meters through the air pulling four flips and off axis and inside it you know looking like a pretzel and then they just go boom stick it to their feet and so and I was talking to a few of the the um of our organization who have been in freestyle on that for years and and they're all coming like 10 years ago a human just couldn't do that you know it's been a progression of spatial awareness and training and and uh just watching other people do stuff and i think young kids these days they watch that stuff and they see it in movies and they see yeah. the perfection of it and how yeah. easy it looks and that's just what's in their mind yeah a lot of them have beat themselves up trying to do it but you know that's their that's their is ingrained in their mind of just the fluid fluidity of, of movement and, and ease. 
Well, there was no YouTube in 1982. There wasn't that. <laughs> so you couldn't watch and watch and watch and watch until you'd say, all right, I've got this. Yeah. Well, that's, that's correct. You know, there wasn't any public YouTube. But for my career as a ski racer, we use video heaps, yeah. video analysis all the time. So, um, and especially when I got to the World Cup level and I had the opportunity to train with, um, with the Swiss team initially and I was by myself, didn't have a coach. Um, just they'd do their video session, have physio and, and you know, I was sort of in, included in a few of their things, but um, I'd just sit in afterwards and spend three hours watching the best skiers in the world against me and comparing times and sections and that was... That was uh, that was it for me, just to watch and learn. And you do it through through video, and then you know putting it into your own your own uh, motion and movement. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be 22 and heading to Sarajevo. Mm. Like when I was 21, I went to Alice Springs, yeah. and that was a big deal. Yeah. What was that like? Um, the first Olympics is a real eye opener. You know, you and I'd watched. Obviously, as a young athlete, I remember watching 76 Olympics sitting, and I hadn't actually travelled overseas yet. Um, my first trip overseas was the next, the next Northern winner when I was 14. Um, watching Franz Klammer win the downhill in Innsbruck in 76, which is probably still regarded as the greatest downhill run of all time. And um, being inspired and a little bit scared, and you know, but everything, just watching this guy just like, just hammer down this mountain, you know, and all the pressure of the world. The Austrian, you know, I don't know if you know that Franz Klammer, he's the greatest downhill no. of all time, won 26 World Cups, Olympic champion, you know, overall World Cup champion, the highest benchmark of the sport. And as a young man too, he was 21 or 22 then in 76. And, uh, you know, a favourite, but not a red-hot favourite. Um, there was a Swiss guy that was probably the favourite, Bernard Rusi, and he'd laid down the the winning run to that point um, but the night before the German, the Austrian Prime Minister came out and, and you know was asked about the race the next day and skiing such a big thing in in Austria and he he said um, that the financial future of Austria is laying on Franz's shoulders tomorrow really? to win the gold medal like how's that for pressure yeah <laughs> it's such a big deal over there and he came out and like nearly like was on the edge of destruction from top to bottom but the wildest yeah, craziest yeah. most in control out of, out of control and the risk that he laid down the last 20 seconds to to really win it because he sensed that he was behind from the sort of crowd vibe as he was coming through and there's right. this one last section that was doesn't tv doesn't do it justice and i actually got to ski that section not in a race just just ski down it years later when i was doing some coaching and i and it just changed my whole opinion about him again and he's a mate you know like i, I ski raced against him eventually and um just that respect of what it takes to put on the line. So yeah, watching that, um, and then more well, seventy six, eighty. So not that long later, six seven years later. You know, I was at my first games racing against Franz. He was still racing for Austria, and that would have been surreal. Yeah, um, but getting there, you know, I'd, I'd raced World Cup already for a, a year. So yep. I started World Cup at sort of at about twenty, um, and then downhill became my thing which is a sort of f1 of you know, yeah. motor gp of ski racing yeah. the highest speeds the theoretically the highest danger um downhillers probably get injured less than slalom skiers because there's less torque on your body but when we crash that's when we you know hurt ourselves you never walk away scot-free so yeah getting to 
Did you feel the pressure? Like from uh, of the Olympics? Of, yeah. Um, I didn't tell, because we were, you know, largely unknown, mm. very little media, and we we're just in our little bubble doing our little thing. Um, and I was having, you know, pretty good success already. I, I'd had a top 10 that season in World Cup, and um, like the three races leading into it, I was 6th, 7th, and 10th. Um, so I was in pretty good form, but still not a lot of recognition um, until you get to the Olympics and then the whole focus changes. And um, the good thing about the games is that the downhill's on the first day, Yeah, right. <laughs> usually. Um, and our race was scheduled for the first day and I'd trained really well. And, you know, you, you get to the Olympics and there's so much more going on protocol, more nowadays than there was back then. We just sort of, you know, there wasn't, there was a bit of security back then and, you know, there's more people around, more, more, um, a lot more going on with uh, different bodies and, you know, the Olympic stuff that's going on, opening ceremonies, uh, a lot different. But you, in essence, you're at the same, at a venue racing with the same bunch of guys, you know. So you, and that's the way you sort of come into it. Maybe I was a little bit blind to the fact of whatever. Trying to be Australian naive. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, um, I trained really well. I got third in the last training run. Um, you know, and it was a course that that suited me pretty well. And then all of a sudden, I'm you know medal contention. You know, um, which if the race had have happened the following day, probably would have been fine because I would have I wouldn't have heard much of that until after the race. So but as soon it, as they mention that, you start getting well. You just you can't help but not think about it, and not just mention it. It's you know it's drummed into you by every you know the press wanna. Um, get onto it and it was a major you know it's a major story yeah. but then a big storm came in and, and the um the race was delayed for a week <laughs> right so for a week i had that just drummed into my oh, head okay that not would have that not and it ended up not being metal contention i was you know i was going to win the gold that was you know, and that's all like what because there were, was another competitors there. no there was plenty of other that was just the story that was being fed to me and right, asked and you right, know, right. and over the week of expectation where nothing was happening no training no no nothing it was just a big blizzard that basically shut down the game for a week um you know the story got out of control you know and uh by the time the race day came around i was just i was in i was a zombie i <laughs> i literally was and it's the only race in my career i have no recollection of what i did on the way down the hill really? and i came 19th you know it was the worst race of the season for me were you and devastated? I, yeah, I was, you know. And I just took me a while to sort of process it and work it out that, um, you know, and it was the fact that just all that other stuff going on in your head, um, I literally had no, I couldn't tell you whether I turned left or right. I remember pushing out of the start and pulling up in the finish. And normally I'd have, could tell you every speck of snow on the way down the hill and I, it was just a blur. So you've only been able to video and analyze yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, I didn't scare all that bad, but I was just, there was just, I don't know, I was just in this weird, weird zone um, that didn't help. <laughs> so it was a big lesson, really big lesson. And um, the media, they're a bit like vultures, really, when it comes to that sort of a thing. A bit, they are mm. 100% vultures, mm. and worse now than ever, you know. Mm. Um, yeah, there's stories that, that they're going on, on, and then I ended up in the media and could see the vulture side of it. Yeah. It was, was, you know, like trying oh, I think I resisted it pretty well and I you know I wasn't sort of the investigative but watching certain aspects of like the Olympic coverage how they're trying to dig up dirt on people and I'm like fuck guys like these guys are here to do their best and you're trying mm. to you know and crucify them and they're just kids. At the, yeah at the same time as you want to build them up to be mm. you know just try and find a happy medium but that's not the not in the nature of media 
Mm. So anyway, it was a big story, a big lesson for me and, um, and a disappointment, and, uh, and, but probably set me on the path to greater success and how to, you know, how to handle that and manage that. Um, and every Olympics for me was, was vastly different. Uh, two of them pretty disappointing, one of them sort of okay, but I never cracked it at the Olympics, which was ultimately disappointing, but still they're incredible things to be a part of. I reckon. Yeah. Yeah. Good yeah. on you. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other day you posted a really nice Instagram post going up the International Pommer. Yeah. And uh, I didn't realise that the Pommer was built in the year that man well, supposedly landed on the Supposedly, yeah. yeah. I'd like to believe they did. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, well, I actually had dinner with Buzz Aldrin, uh, Aldrin uh, just okay. at a private house, not at a function or anything. So after we talk about this, I'll mention that. But, yeah, okay. Mm, it was a cool story. Um, the, so that pom is over 50 years old. Yeah. Um, and obviously, for you, you would have seen lots of changes at Falls Creek. Yeah. You've been here since, well, we... Well, what? since you died, yeah, I came here when I was six weeks old, so yeah. yeah. So a lot of what you've done and experienced, you got your parents to thank for. A hundred percent, yeah. Mm. And, yeah, the resort, they're, they're part of that small group of sort of pioneers, which doesn't is pretty hard to replicate these days because, you know, in most things, most in the ski areas, especially in Australia, it's all been done, you know, where we're just yeah. sort of modifying what's, what's happened in the past. But, yeah, mum and dad, mum in particular... Was the was the one that started skiing in our family? She, as a young young girl, she always was attracted to the snow just from movies and pictures. And I mean, she grew up in Bronte in Sydney, you know, and had never been to the snow. Couldn't convince uh, the family to to take her down there when she was a young kid. Um, Dad was not keen on the cold, so they'd always go north to warmer climates for winter holidays. Um, so yeah, she came down in '54. Uh, the first year she was out of teachers college and teaching, earning a bit of her own money and her and her girlfriend booked a holiday. There would and have been virtually nothing here. Maybe. Virtually nothing, yeah. Dirt road. Dirt road all the way up. No phones. No, no phones, definitely. Um, like four or five buildings, I think two rope toes. Um, a little ski school that, um, yeah, they basically looked after 20, 30 people were on the mountain. And they came here because it was the cheapest place to, to, to come at yeah. the time um they caught a train from sydney to albury on an old sort of four-wheel drive ex-military bus truck thing up to the snow line which that year was about turnback creek which is seven k's down the hill yeah that's where the transport stopped and you walk from there to your accommodation really with all the gear on your back i mean that would have turned most people away you know but uh people don't walk from stop one to stop two nowadays that's it's unfathomable how yeah. much how much you know they looked after mm. and still bitch in mind i think i i think we do too much for the for the guests these days but once you start it's hard to stop you know mm. but the shuttle whole shuttle side but that was the area yeah walk up you know no stairs anywhere no, no stairs, stairs and uh there's literally only a couple of places in the bowl uh Bogong ski club was already there that's where she stayed um there was a big lodge that burnt down the next year that they stayed in the next year which was bob hyman's um, beautiful grand, the Le Grand Couloir, um, which burnt down I think in 55 or 56 and mum stayed there or maybe she stayed no I think she stayed in Bogong Ski Club the first time but then she got into the club scene it just hooked her in, as it does most people you know skiing even back then with the what you'd ex- sort of think would be the hardships of it you know she was a phys ed teacher loved all sort, 
sorts of different sport, um, active and, and uh, adventurous. And yeah, she just fell in love with it and then dragged my dad down here when, uh, when they started dating and he wasn't that keen on it initially, but he found a love for it too. And then, uh, yeah, in the 60s made it their life and, and uh, for all of us, pretty fortunately for me in particular, being a, a good young sports, oh, you know, sports was always going to be my thing one way or another. I was a you know, highly competitive swimmer and rugby league player and soccer player. and um, So, yeah, sport was my thing and I'm pretty happy skiing was the, the end game for me, still is. So even at three, your mum's recognising going, this guy can do it. Well, more so the the Austrians that were here, you know, right. they just looked at me on skis as a yeah, three or four year old and said, yeah, that, that kid just rides a beautiful, just has a natural feel for it. And there was, there's a classic comment from the then head of ski school about me, I think when I was three, maybe four, that I was too old to be snow plowing. Yeah, <laughs> so right. It was time to be 100% parallel. So yeah, there was my talent was picked up pretty early, which was fortunate and you know, we had good uh, good young and old Austrians here, Europeans here that were the ski, there wasn't a race club or anything at that point in time, but I'd, you know, mum being a, being a phys ed teacher was keen on all of us having good tuition in, in sport that we did. So yeah. we always had to have a X amount of lessons each year and there wasn't a kid's ski school, so I was, we'd be stuck in with the adults and they'd be like, who are these little pipsqueaks, you know? And, but um, it, it pays off to have that, you know, that uh, tuition, I think, from an early age. And mm. it's, it's, it shows now with the kids that are in most sports and skiing in particular that, that ski from like three onwards, there's stuff that is just ingrained in you that you yeah. don't, you know, a good mate of mine, Glenn Plake, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, he's a pretty famous American free ride extreme skier. Um, we became mates through the 80, through the late 80s and 90s, met him in Europe and um, after we got to know each other a bit, his, uh, his, uh, his question was me, he says, do you, you know, do you remember learning to ski? And I've had to think about it, I've gone, no, I don't, you know, I can't mm. have no great. A bit like walking. Yeah, mm. probably for me, even more natural. I'm a pretty ordinary walk. I'll trip over a line in the carpet. <laughs> Put me on skis, I'm pretty good. So yeah, nat- his term was natural born skier because you do it from before you can remember. So um, yeah, in those years in sport, develop your, you know, your, your muscle skills, your muscle memories, your broad base of technique, but also physically develops your body, you know, your, your knee strength and, um, um, and I think you know, for my career, I, I got through pretty much unscathed without a major injury. Um, still, you know, I've been skiing for fifty-five years this year and haven't had a major injury. I mean, I broke my leg when I was a kid skiing, but as far as ski racing, knee injuries, all that kind of stuff, never had one. So, lucky. Yeah, lucky. No doubt. And it's, not, it's not like I didn't try a few times. I had some pretty good come-offs. Well, at the speeds that you would have been doing mm. in the height of your career, that's yeah. You never, never come off unscathed, but yeah, like I didn't miss a start in my whole walk-up career in downhill, which is pretty good, unheard of. So, mm. yeah, yeah. Was your mum always forthright like she is nowadays? Yeah, yeah. She's probably more. I think as she's gotten older, the, the filters have worn off. <laughs> yeah, I've had a couple of interesting she's conversations. Bloody, she's with bloody her. outrageous, Noel. She's um, loves a chat, obviously. Yeah, she as does. Everyone knows, and a beer. And a beer and a yeah. wine and um and great company and loves being here still. Yeah. Um, yeah, but she was, 
you know, probably beyond her years in, in sport um, as far as development went because for ski racing in particular in our area, they were just throwing all the young kids into stuff that was way too advanced and dangerous for them and basically maiming, you know, nearly every kid in Australia got maimed when they hit the international circuit because they were thrown into World Cup at 17 years of age and thrown into downhill speed disciplines with no skill or, or strength or anything. So mum... Um, sort of unbeknownst a little bit to me didn't hold me back but wouldn't let me do the speed events and wouldn't let me do certain things until she felt i was physically strong enough for very which, good reason for very good reason yeah because mm. when i got to that level and started doing it i was right away right onto it and, and successful and and safe you know to a degree mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, i met her the other day in Otunga. yeah and she was saying that she built that lodge yeah was that your home? Did you live there? It was, yeah. yeah. So mum and dad um, were managing lodges up here in the 60s. They managed Ripperoo, um, did some stints at Albury Ski Club and I think maybe Myrtleford um, when they first started spending a significant amount of time down here. Um, became club managers where they do about six or seven weeks in the, in the heart of the season. Um, and then uh, with a couple of kids already and deciding whether this was going to be their life or whether it was just going to be a holiday thing they loved it so much they took the plunge and applied for a, for a block of land a plot which weren't too many being released in that era um and yeah got the site that Atunga was built on a couple of weeks later which they pretty much did themselves because they thought mm. they'd have a couple of years of of uh, time to you know work away and get some money behind them and but they begged, borrowed and stole and uh, maybe not stole, but... Um, well, your dad was a police officer. Dad was a police officer, yeah. yeah. Or maybe no, exactly. back then. Yeah. Who knows? No, well, he was... Um, there was a bit of a incident that happened, well, a big incident that happened around their group of police in Sydney and, and he was implicated because all of a sudden he had this lodge down in the mountains. But um, the investigation showed that it was all legit. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, that you know, through through mum's dad and 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 their own hard work and and uh, another silent part that came in for a year or two, they they got it built as a little commercial venture, and um and went went yeah you know, sort of went from strength to strength. It was definitely their calling. You know, both mm. of them were, had a real love for the the mountains and the snow, and um, um yeah, just went on. So that was our home and business, family business for thirty years from open in 67 and it's a beautiful it's it's a stunning lodge yeah the views are awesome yeah yeah it is an amazing spot so they that's where they wanted to build um up that and there was bugger all up that end of the valley Mm. a village because the bowl was it wasn't it the bowl was it yeah and everything came this way but um the lift company had said that the next lift going into falls creek would go up where falls express is yeah um it took 20 years for that to happen and a bunch of other stuff went in in the Meantime, but that end of the valley and village, um, you know, grew and grew and grew. And, and then uh, when, when Halley's lift went in, when Halley's Comet went through in, I think, 87 it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it sort of redirected a lot of stuff down that end and opened up a whole bunch more terrain, you know. Mm. Um, and, and was good for our lodging business. So, yeah, we benefited for that for about 10 years before we sold it. But, yeah, it's been amazing to watch the switch um, down there, which has been fantastic, I think, for the village, and and now it's they're sort of focusing a bit more on this end again, and yeah, that's getting, right. striking a good balance yeah. occurring, yeah, making it new again, yeah, and it has, um, you know, in the last ten years, the village has gone through a huge, so sort of rebuild and rebadging and 
and I think it's in good shape. You know, it's a beautiful village, always has been, but um, it looks really nice and functions really well. I bet you're grateful for your parents for having done oh, that yeah. hard work back then. Yeah, for sure. You know, um, and it was interesting when uh, when uh, mum and dad split up in the early '80s, and mum disappeared for well, didn't disappear, but disappeared from the mountain for a year or two, and and um, did some work at Threadbow, and then ended up coming back here a couple of years later and bought a little unit. Um, but um, yeah, watching them work and run, and at the end when when dad dad stayed on in the lodge, and uh, when it was time for him to, he, you know, he was he'd had his day, and we all sat down and discussed about a take, you know, whether we, any of myself and my two sisters were wanting to take it on, and for, in my mind, I just I just couldn't replicate what dad was doing at the time, you know, ten years later probably yeah, but none of us felt that we we had what it took to mm. you know live up to what what they'd, they'd done, done and yeah over the 30 year period yeah it was sad because it wasn't just none of us were in the right place in our life at the time and um we should have bit the bullet and made it work but didn't didn't so uh yeah it got sold to a great family and then to another good family and the crew they've got it now doing a fantastic yeah, job so, yeah. Down there. Yeah. yeah yeah so the reputation and and our legacy lives on mm, definitely which is nice yeah what about when your parents split up? How did that affect you? Um, it, it, I was already spending like nine months a year in Europe, so I wasn't around all that much. Um, and especially when it happened, I wasn't here when, when mum spat the dummy and walked out, <laughs> which is pretty common knowledge. Um, so I was off on a training camp, or I think I was in Europe for the, for the summer, um, and I only came back for a month or two sort of a month or so after it happened. So it was odd, um, but they'd sort of lived in, in each other's back pocket for 20 years and business partners and, you know, raised three kids. It, it, it affected my younger sister the most because she was still in high school and yeah. and living, you know, living at home half the time and, um, and boarding down at Scott's in Albury. And um, so she was probably affected the most. Carrie and I were already traveling overseas and doing our own thing. Um, so yeah, it was a it was a it was a change when when I came home and she wasn't there. That's for sure. So and, and dad was sort of just hanging in there, you know, trying to run the, the show by himself. But to his credit, he got his act together and and pulled it together and went on and became very successful. Or in, you know, in, in uh, kept the success of the lodge going and and built it up even bigger and better. And mum settled into a. Yeah, another. She worked with me in my businesses and continued doing her life. So yeah, life mm. went on. It's a hard thing, marriage, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I've been through it. You know. mm. Got a great daughter and and Toddy, my ex-wife, and I are good mates. And they, she's just and her her partner have bought a place in Ropers. Okay. So they're up here a lot. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, it's it's tough to manage. You know, you you start off with a great love and expectation and plans and sometimes they work and most often they don't you know mm. you just end up going in different well, directions when you're so. in your i don't know how old you were when you were married but yeah. when you're in your say 20s yeah and you're standing up in front of the crowd saying this is the person forever yeah, yeah. you know um you know you don't know that person really no you, and you don't know yourself well you don't know the person you're saying to and you don't know yourself yeah, yeah. so that's yeah. exactly right yeah i mean i was 29 30 when when i got married i just Finished my World Cup career, um, basically hamstrung physically and financially. I had a, had a, we had a pretty bad car crash 
from 1990 and I had a back injury from that that um, ended up wiping me off the World Cup circuit a year for or so good. later. For good? Um, it looked like it was for good at the time. Um, I ended up sorting it out and getting my back right again. Didn't have to have an operation or anything, um, but it sort of worked out through a whole process of elimination and a bit of luck and got it sorted. And, and I mean, I was told by several doctors that I actually, well, the first doctor said I should quit skiing, not just ski racing. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, that's not going to happen. And then I got a bit better, bit happened. better opinion from the second one, and a better opinion again from the third. So, mm. um, yeah, it would have. I don't know what, what the hell I would have been doing if that had actually happened at 29. You know. Yeah. Um, probably. Yeah. Who knows? But anyway, I had a drive, too much of a drive for that to happen, and and ended up going back and racing professionally for another 10 or 15 years. So I should have, in hindsight, I should have gone back to World Cup for sure. You know, I had a year out and. Um, it would have been a better call, but there was plenty of um, history with the sport and the federation that I just figured I was over it. That yeah, and went on to do other things. So, but fortunately, skiing remained a massive part of my life and still does. So, well, speaking about your ex-wife and here's you in your twenties traveling the world, mm. but also kind of half immersed in an up-and-coming music industry. What was that like? Well, she was big time into the music industry. So we, it was an interesting sort of turn of events that how we got to meet. Um, Brad, well, started off with Kerry Armstrong, actually, who's a famous actress, stayed at our lodge when she was a teenager and, and did a bit of a stint waitressing and whatnot for the, for the right. family. It was like family friends. Later In later years, she started dating Brad Robinson and married him, who was one of the lead guitarists for Aussie Crawl, Australian yeah, Crawl. Right. And they came as a, as, as a couple and stayed and, and we became good mates. And then Brad um, was managing, well, actually knew Brett, I think, which is Toddy's older brother, who was a bass guitarist and played with various bands. And ended up, he was managing the Chantuzies and brought them to Falls Creek to play in the frying pan. All right, okay. And they played at my sister's, younger sister's 21st birthday, which right. was a combined birthday for a few you took a shine to one of the singers um i took a shine to all of them they were four good looking girls i remember them yeah yeah yeah. um so i got to know him a little bit then but it wasn't for a few years later when she the santuza sort of finished uh finished it at the time and she was doing her own thing um and came up with her own band and then we uh yeah got to know each other better then uh when when she was sort of doing her own thing and not probably not as famous and but then yeah right in the middle of a, the ups and downs of that career so yeah well um she, isn't she uh the niece of olivia newton john correct yeah did yeah. you get to meet her yeah i've known i know i know olivia and we lived in their house when i was pro racing in the states right. in olivia's house based ourselves in la there for a while when toddy was pregnant with with Layla actually that so would have been um, in the greece days almost oh after but um, yeah like she's Super famous, you know, yeah. still is, always yeah. has been. So post Greece, but not that long after Greece. Um, yeah, megastar. She is, you know, and lived the Hollywood, had an amazing house. We lived in one of her houses in, you know, mm. in, uh, up in, in Malibu. And um, she's a beautiful woman, amazing woman. Um, and Toddy's mother, who she didn't really know, Olivia's sister, um, lived in the States too. And Toddy didn't really know her for most of her young life. Didn't she know her left, own mother? No, she left Australia when she was three, split up and disappeared in essence and 
didn't have much to do with the kids at all. So I didn't really get to... I don't think she'd actually met her again until she was 18 or 19. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, ended up being having a pretty decent relationship with her mum and, and probably... But Olivia was always the, the sort of glue in that family. Whenever she was in Australia, they'd, she'd come and visit the family. And, um, yeah, so it's pretty... When you say that you, you know, for Layla to be related to Olivia Newton-John. Yeah, that's right. It's I'm, crazy. I'm a family relation, but yeah, it's 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 pretty incredible. Yeah, pretty mm. incredible because she's um she is a megastar and a, and a but a beautiful soul, human being, great woman. Mm. Yeah, yeah. it's one a good story. Been. But that part of the story's crazy part of it, really. From it a, is, yeah. From a, like big picture point of view of what was going on in your life. Yeah, yeah, and it was a classic, and that's sort of going back to it's like the jet the, set. And, and the media, the, the 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 vultures of the media, how you sort of get sucked into it because she was a well-known personality. I was, you know, well-known sports person, and you know, it's not an uncommon story yeah. of yeah. of attraction mm. um, of two people, you know, they're sort of in the, in the limelight and and fairly successful, and yeah, it was it was fun. We had a, we had a great great time together and travelled, and you know, was a, was a good young family, and it's it's a bit of a shame that we didn't. Didn't survive because um, you know we had a lot of great things in common, and and she found a love for the snow, which was interesting. And I've always had a, I didn't find a music career or anything. <laughs> I was going to ask you, did you like their music, or were you? I did, yeah. Or they, were you made to like it? No, no, I thought they were they were a great band. Yeah, they were they were one of the they sort of you know the sort of made up bands that you see these days. Hmm. They, a lot it's of people sort of thought thought they were manufactured, but they certainly weren't. They were just four four mates that her and her, her girlfriends would come around on a Tuesday night and they'd cook dinner and mm. sing a few songs together and her brother walked past one night and heard them singing together and goes, oh, you guys have got some good... And he was, you know, bass player for a couple of popular bands and well and truly entrenched in the music industry, more so than the girls were, and um, suggested that, said, oh, you know, I'll get a band together and let's go and do some gigs, which they did and just... Boom, off they went, got signed up straight well, away. So I think in Australia at the time it was predominantly men mm. that were that were cruising the pubs bands. Correct, yeah. And then here comes a group of girls. Yeah. Sexy they, looking girls. And they were very sexy girls and, mm. and four good looking guys. So they were actually a group of eight. Right. So Dave Rain, yeah. who's who was James Rain from Ozzy Crawl's younger brother, was on the drums. Brett Toddy's brother was on the bass. Um, Frankie Frankie I can't remember his last name. Was a, was a lead guitarist who was a rockabilly classic, beautiful guitarist and and a, and a keyboard player. Um, so yeah, they had a they were a group of eight. The girls were obviously it wasn't the front. Frankie, Frankie J Holden. Was no, it? not Frankie no. J Holden. Um, yeah, he's not well at the minute. I was just talking to Toddy about him the other day. He's he's um, yeah, not not a healthy human being, which is a shame because he was a great um, entertainer as well. So all the all the boys were sort of successful in their own right and came together as a as the band and and had good success you know they wrote a bunch of their own songs and a couple of number ones and mm. and um still playing today you know the girls are still yeah how they're doing it with the countdown revival and all that so they it's a different sort of model but they're still out there in their 50s. entertaining in their 50s still looking yeah. good and having a good time and yeah playing good gigs showing so, yeah. that you can exactly yeah yeah, yeah. It doesn't music's like that isn't it? it's like you they uh if you keep a passion for it 
unfortunately sport's not quite as generous <laughs> no that's right it seems to be oh we can see the hills now there we go um we stayed in a caravan park in tarthra recently yeah and it's owned by frankie j holden okay and he sings by the fire at night well he's a character too and he came up here when he was in his comedian days actually and i remember even doing lane's live, live stand-up um with a sort of band of comedians it was pretty regular through the probably through the 80s as well um so I met Frankie a few times and, and yeah, mates with all that crew. Mm. Yeah. yeah, he was still the same. Yeah, he's yeah. a character. Yeah, he Great was. Great actor and yeah, his, his career's taken many twists and turns, but all of them good. But to find him in a caravan yeah. park in Tarthra, yeah. it was crazy really. Yeah, which yeah. is probably, probably one of the things he loves doing the most. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. So um, it would have been an exciting time, the 80s and 90s mm. for you guys. Um, but now you're doing something completely different. I am, yeah, yeah. I've um, still still around skiing, and um, yeah. Look, the end of my my World Cup career, as we touched on earlier, was was cut short. I retired from World Cup at 29, you know, which is really for downhill is in your absolute prime. Yeah. Um, and you know, I finished my third Olympics that year, and um, knew I knew I was. I was just hanging in there physically. I was a day-to-day proposition. You know, my back would just let go and I'd be on the ground for four days, you know. Um, so I had to uh, make the decision to that it was 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 the end of that career for me. Yeah. Um, and that would have been a hard one. It was a hard one. Um, and Todd and I were already dating and, and I was sort of, you know, I had a little, my first little business going, which was a Falls Creek photo service, um, which I ran in the winters here, but skiing was... 100% my, you know, I knew I could tell you if I had it kept going, you know, your life was so structured in sport. You'd, like if said people say, what are you going to be doing at four o'clock in the afternoon and, you know, two years down the track, you'd tell them exactly where you'd be and what you'd be doing because it was, you know, every minute, every day was accounted for and planned for. So making the decision to quit that life and, and then try and find something else. And Toddy was being pretty successful. Um, um, at the time, and I had a little business going here, so yeah, we uh, I made the decision to to quit about halfway through the season, um, knowing that uh, at the Olympics already that that was you know, and I sort of made the announcement after my Olympic downhill, last Olympic downhill run that that um, I'd be finishing up World Cup that year. Yep. Got through the rest of the season, and and um, you know, actually was probably at my best right at the end of the season. Um, and the, and the last race I did was in Aspen, um, and I had a was having a pretty good crack actually. It was fastest to the to the midway point in the, in the, the very last race was a super G and blew out down the lower section and I was side slipping down the hill and getting told by every every single person on the way down, you know, you can't quit, you can't quit, you you know, you're too good still and yeah. So there was a lot of people, you know definitely um keen for me to continue so i was a bit conflicted at the time but i was pretty broken physically and uh and certainly financially trying to keep up with the expense of of racing world cup not a lot of not a lot of support financially so is um, there any money in it um yeah there there was but you had to really at the pointy end you had to be top 10 top well top 15 in that area was world cup points if you're in the points, and I, 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 most of my career I was in the points, and I had good ski contracts, and um, you know, I was kind of earning good money, 
but was spending every cent I had and more trying to keep up, you know, just to run a program to be competitive. Um, so what was there wasn't a lot of money coming from from Australia, from, from the industry or anything in Australia. It was all just directly through my achievements and contracts yeah. I had in Europe. I get, you know, get the odd government grant and that, but there wasn't like there is today the OWI with, you know, money and sports commission and that, you know, identifying top end athletes and I'd been in the top 10 top 15 for most of my career this day in this day and age you know I'd probably have a 300 400,000 dollar program spent on me by the government and and Olympic winner student and so on so if you were in your 20s yeah if you were yeah totally yeah. yeah if I was if I came through and hit the hit the levels I did nowadays or if any of our kids do that nowadays they'd have a you know a rip snorter program and money spent mm. on them which you need yeah so I did come to a point, you know, where I um, was time to finish, and we got married that summer and had a kid, and a little ladder popped out and came along, and had a good little business going here, and did a bit of travelling and whatnot, and then yeah, I ended up going on a race, got my body right, and sort of decided Toddy wanted to go and do some drama studies in the states, so we decided to move over there for a while, and and um, yeah, moved into a house, and she studied drama in LA, and I went and did the US Pro Tour semi-successfully for a couple of years um and then um yeah the last few years of racing uh there was some good stuff in in that pro sort of pro career period um and unfortunately in that area you couldn't you couldn't go back to world cup or olympics you know because you'd turn professional even though every athlete on world cup was professional from probably the 60s but it was alpine skiing was the last bastion of amateurism mm. So it wasn't until the uh, I think 2002 games where they allowed, or late 90s, 2000s, where they got rid of amateur amateur tag altogether and you could do whatever and come and race for your nation or qualify for the Olympics or do whatever. So, But I missed that boat, unfortunately. But it would have been good to, I think, you know, hindsight's great, go back to race World Cup rather than go on to a professional career because um, that was about the time when the Olympic Winter Institute started and... Um, yeah, there's there's some things changing, but I'd um wouldn't say I had a bad taste in my mouth, but my Olympics were a mixed bag. As you know, we touched on the or went through the first ones. The experience there was not an uncommon experience. The second games was a disaster, organi- organizational wise, by our sporting body and and the Olympic body at the time. And they they couldn't have fucked it up more for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was in red hot form for that games as well. And then by the third Olympics with a back injury and a day-to-day prospect I had amazing amazing support to get through to the games and and actually skied pretty decently in the events that I did so I could see the sport on the upswing but I just thought I was done yeah <laughs> so you got to be able to recognize that yeah and make the break don't you you right, do yeah it? so yeah we has been yeah exactly right and it happens pretty quick you know mm. So um, you went from a very structured life to an unstructured life. How, how pretty, did you cope pretty with that? Pretty much, yeah. Um, well, it's one of the hardest things to transition to, I think. You know, um, not having to be anywhere at a certain time, not having to, you know. I mean, I still went on and I was probably like that for a year and a half, two years. But and then I went on to race on these different circuits, and it wasn't nearly as structured as as the World Cup. And you really are just a one man team. You know, not not answering to anyone but yourself. Um, and I, was, I still had a pretty good training ethic, um, and married with a kid, trying to, you know, put money, put put the bread on the table, and that was was not easy as well. 
um, and combining that together with Tot because she sort of dropped out of the music scene and acting scene um, when we got married and um, when Layla came along. So she focused on studies and a few other things and then then she got into the media side doing Brecky Radio and stuff when we came back and, and did extremely well at that and I was still sort of tinkering around up here and um, one thing led to another year and we sort of split apart about seven years into our marriage. Things went different directions and which was pretty you know, devastating at the time. It took me a while to get over because it, it wasn't really my decision. <laughs> it was more Toddy's decision. So, But you get on with life and um, yeah, I'm fortunate that Layla's definitely a mountain kid and she, she loves always gravitated to... So she, did, she always did winners up here, went to primary school up here. So our family life sort of melted around around the mountains still which was great and um did you remarry no i've never remarried had some long-term girlfriends but never went down that path and actually told he's never remarried either so right which was interesting she um had a few more cracks at it than i did but <laughs> a few a few announcements but well she's better looking than you isn't she well yeah you'd say that mm. you could say that <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so yeah so in the end we've come back and we, you know we're good mates and we spent a lot of time together with our daughter and which is great. Yeah, well, so. she'd definitely appreciate that the fact that you are mates. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's important. You know, I think for whatever differences you have when you when you separate, if you can get over them relatively quickly and and uh, and move on and still cater to your strengths as as uh, as parents, especially. Well, you're you're connected to her forever. Yeah. Because you have a totally. child, so you have to be on the same page, really. It's um, a lot more bonding than standing in front of each other, saying you're the one for the rest of my life, because mm. the child is the one, or your children are the ones for the rest of your life. So, yeah, you got to look out for them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, yeah, Layla's a great kid. Um, we'd like to think it's, you know, down to our parenting, but I think she's just a good kid, you know. <laughs> she's a good egg. <laughs> in spite of you both. In spite yeah. of us both, yeah. Our lifestyles and everything else. Yeah, so um, no, we're both super proud of, of Layla and what she's doing with her life too, so it's mm. good. Awesome. Yeah. So nowadays you're running tours. How yeah, that, so... How does that work? Um, yeah, well, it's been about 10 years since I started the backcountry tours here and it and, um, sort of came out of the wilderness of, of a change of a few different things in life. I, I started the snowmobile tours on the mountain here, um, which are... Still going. Um, I started the. Well, Are they the ones that Doug runs? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, that was my second business on the hill, and sort of fought tooth and nail to get up and running. Um, and I had the photo business, which is now the Top Shots guys. Yeah. Mike and Mike and uh, those guys worked for me initially, and um, yeah, it was a weird sort of phase on the mountain here for me, um, banging heads with a few people on the hill. Is that because you? We're no longer the like skiing champion. You were now like a businessman trying. Oh, to... I was sort of in between because I was still racing professionally, and you know, like the one of the pro tours I went on, I won it with a with an English guy with the Commonwealth team, and we beat the Austrians, the Swiss. You know, so I was still having success, and I was then commentating for TV. So I still, um, pro, well, I think probably the highest profile winner sports person in Australia mm. right through that era so but here was home and you know I didn't expect really to be treated any different than anyone else and and um lived you know lived along the community here and and my peers who were running great businesses here and yeah. and taking inspiration from as well um 
But yeah, I sort of stepped away from falls for a little while uh, in 2001. So I got out of the photo business and the snowmobile business and we're saying um, focusing on, on Chill Factor actually and, and some media work. So we'd started Chill Factor um, as a website in 94 with a buddy who was then sales director of Triple M uh, Network Radio in Melbourne and Australia. Um, and he was sort of looking at what was going on with the with this new thing called the internet, you know, mm. and the web. And um, we'd become mates. Little did we know. <laughs> little did we know, yeah. So in 94, we started the world's first snow sports website. And I didn't even own a computer. Mm. <laughs> I didn't know, I don't think I even knew how to type. Um, certainly didn't know how to program, but we knew what we wanted to achieve and had some, you know, we were just the, the we set up the framework for it. And so I went sort of into a media media career and, and uh, spent a bit of time off. The, I was still here all winter and, and later started going to school up here, so I ran everything from up here. But yeah, started that and then went into print media and ran that for a while and sort of focused on, on a commentary gig, which was going pretty regularly. We had a, a World Cup show that um, covered all the winter sports that, that when um, sort of pay TV was, was kicking off in Australia too, so there was plenty of money around in media in those days. So I had a show called The White Circus that we did about 100 episodes a season uh, or, or a year on the, all the Northern Hemisphere activity and a bit of Southern Hemisphere activity. So there's plenty going on off the hill. Um, and then I did a bit of work for a tech company for a while in web streaming and on the sports side, early days of web streaming. Um, so I sort of became a bit of a tech head there for a while and entrenched in that part of the the world and the growing of the web. And we, yeah, we, Al and I started uh, through Chill Factor, put the very first webcam infrastructure in the world in, had the first in Australia here. So every resort had webcams, all independent through, paid for through Chill Factor. Um, and it was interesting, you know, not knowing bugger all about what was possible in those days, we are like, everyone have live cameras and you know so you can see people skiing and these dudes on the back end are going well that might happen in like 10 or 15 years but it's impossible right now because mm. no bandwidth no bandwidth i mean our first cameras would dial in to wangaratta make a long distance phone call to wangaratta um spend a minute online sending a couple of pictures through then hang up and do that every 20 minutes huge cost it was crazy how much it cost to run a you know, a webcam infrastructure in that in that area, with like fifteen cams doing doing long distance, you know, hundred long distance calls a day. Mm. Um, but we had bought, you know, got sponsorship for it and whatnot, so it was all all working all right. But um, watching that whole world change and internet change and streaming change and getting involved with you know webcasting, did some ran some webcasts for Rip Call in the early in the sort of mid to early days. You know, the surf industry was right onto that live webcasts really pioneered it in a lot of ways along with porn i guess you know sport mm. and porn but surfing um for the live webcast they were doing amazing stuff from beach locations all over the world and so yeah i was working for a company that had a super exciting bit of technology that um for for webcasting and digital swing tags and whatnot um, which was pretty fun for a couple of years and i was sitting at the office in melbourne one day just thinking what the fuck am I doing here? You know, just dreaming about being in the mountains. So, basically, through hook, through a uh, through a bit of argy bargy with the company and seeing that it probably wasn't going the direction I wanted to be involved in, ditched it all and came back to the mountains and 
Uh, so probably mid. Yeah, I was only gone for a year or two. So 2003, 2004. And um, sort of wondering what I was going to do, you know, back here. And uh, the lift company started up the cat skiing operation in, the, in that era, in like early 2000s. And, and utilizing all this fantastic terrain out beyond the, the ski area boundary, still within the resort boundary. And it was actually a, with the plan of, of um, yeah, putting lifts out there eventually. Um, and that was going ahead, but got kiboshed by the change of Liberal government when Kennett got rolled. Yeah. They'd, lift company had done all the work and had, from what I believe, had actually put deposits on ski lifts and everything and was going to open up Rocky Knolls, Pretty Valley, Mackay. Would have been pretty exciting for Falls, but it didn't happen. So they got this cat skiing thing going to show that they were still utilising the terrain. And, and it sort of died a, died a death, the cat skiing. The cat was old and I think it cost a lot of money to run. And um, you know, the crew that ran it the first couple of years had, had moved on to other things. So um, it hardly ever operated, yeah. and, um, which was a shame because it was sort of still high up in their marketing side of things at cat skiing at Falls. Yeah, right. just, they just never, never ran for for reasons I found out that I got asked by some friends to come on a tour with them. And um, then I got rung by the lift company and said, oh, you know, we, we haven't got a, a guide for the, for these guys for the tour and, um, you know, you know the terrain, do you think you could guide them? I said, yeah, sure. You know, I'd, I'd actually had the, through the snowmobiling business from 96 to 2001, we did a little ski operation with that. So, and I'd skied out there my whole life, so I probably knew it better than most people, or probably better than anyone. And I said, sure, yeah, I'll do that. That'll be fun. So I said, you're like, we'll pay you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, even better. So I rang my mates that were going out and I said, hey, you know, you don't have to buy my seat anymore. I'm going to be your guide. They've been awesome. So, so yeah, I did that for a little while and then um, got quite enthusiastic about it because um, it was a fun and, and great operation um, or potentially great operation. But it just, like, after a while, I realized that they were doing their damnedest for it not to run. Um, yeah. And, you know, old cats, expensive to run. You know, it's probably costing them more every time it went out than what they could charge for it. So um, I'd identified these new big uh, workhorse snowmobiles um, that were that were on the market and I pitched it to the lift company say, hey, why don't we ditch the cat and do it with snowmobiles? Um, so I came up with the concept that we're still running now um, and with them basically designed the the sled that's on the back for the passengers on a not quite a beer coaster. So they actually sit on those chairs. Yeah. And you tie them up the side of the hill. Exactly, yeah. So everyone thought we'd do it by ropes, which you can do, but it's physically so demanding. You know, you mm. get one run in maybe two mm. and it's so dangerous anyway, it wouldn't it wouldn't never have worked. So I said, no, the guests if we're gonna make it work with this, they've got to be sitting comfortably and getting taken up the hill. Um, so we built this big rig and with, through, with a bit of scepticism from quite a few quarters that it wouldn't work and it would be too heavy and, and you know, the snowmobile wouldn't be able to handle it. And But uh, with a few crew in the lift go in the workshop down the bowl, we, we welded it all up and whacked a few snowboards on the bottom <laughs> with the old snowmobile suspension and tested it and it worked pretty good. Um, in fact, it worked extremely well. So got that up and running the first year. Um, and we sort of had a lot of people looking over my shoulders from the lift co and, and, and other quarters and but piggyback straight onto the back of the cat scanning thing. So fortunately at the time we didn't have to go through any major processes to mm. get permission. 
um, it was just the next phase of the, of the CAT scan operation. Anyway, fortunately, after the first year, I was sort of disappointed a bit, didn't have a dedicated snowmobile, you know, so we sort of, a bunch of days we didn't get to run and there was a bit of enthusiasm for it, so I had a meeting with the then manager of the lift car and said, you know, if we're going to go forward with this, I'll, I'll, I'll put my name to it because I think it's going to be a really good product, but I, you know, if I do that, I, I want to run it, we need a dedicated snowmobile, so it's not going to take by lift ops or anything else, and he's gone... He's gone, yeah, you know, it was a bit of a pain in the ass for me this year too. So he just put his hand out and said, why don't you run it and you buy the snowmobile and it's your business. So we shook hands and basically had a little agreement and off it went. So I bought a snowmobile and built it up and so semi-gifted. You know, Are you still was, on the handshake? Yeah, well, it's gone past that. It's organised, um, you know, I had to do a, when it became my business, I had to pitch it to the R&B to get a business licence and, yeah. and went through that process and, and got permission to go forward with it, um, um, but it's been really well supported by the lift company and R&B and, and the village, and it's you know it's a great asset to the mount. It's the only operation of its kind in Australia, and in fact the only that style of operation in the world. So we've really developed that snowmobile access backcountry skiing, and we're pretty fortunate um, here at Falls with the sort of infrastructure of some road network from the from when they built the hydro set up here out through Mount Mackay and Pretty Valley. Um, and then you know the cross country network goes out there too, and the snowmobile tours are out there. So there's a good use of that terrain, and we get a little bit of support with um, with some grooming here and there, for especially get up to the summit of Mount Mackay. Um, so it's it's a we're in the right place to make it work, um, but it could work elsewhere as well. You know, I think for cat skiing operations that have to to bear high speed, you know, different operation around the world, it can it can be something that would work internationally as well, but it certainly works here and works great. So it's, I think this is, I think it's the 11th or 12th season now. So yeah, it went from one machine that was, um, you know, on and off, cause you'd break shit and, you know, mm. <laughs> whatnot, and to two full sleds and now I've got three snowmobiles with a bit of redundancy. So yeah, we operate pretty smoothly nowadays and, and um, yeah, got a good booking online booking service with it, and so I can just. It's popular. Yeah, it's super popular. Mm. Yeah, so on the good days where we're, we're um, booked, and days like this when it's foggy and soupy outside, I sit inside, twiddle my thumbs, and light the fire. Light the fire and hang up with the dogs. Mm. <laughs> Sounds like good life. Yeah. So yeah, last year we had a ripper season. That was our biggest season by far. I did sixty-five days, you know, um, mm. which um, would I think would be you know we might top it one year, but that'd be hard to top. You know that's two-thirds of the skiable days of the season and it was but last year was you know the last three or four years have been very good three years ago was a bit like this the last couple of weeks we've had with just you know soupy foggy which is a little bit unusual for falls we get a lot of sunshine and generally storm cycle in some nice days but this soupy weather we're getting this year hopefully hasn't set in again so um it's a bit demoralizing having to cancel day after day after day and looking at the weather pattern going oh tomorrow looks good and waking up and it's pea soup and mm. So yeah, should you cancel like at the last minute? Yeah, I do. Um, I'm generally I'm pretty good with the weather. Um, so the the night before, I'll let the guests know, you know, what we're thinking for the next day, and and then at AM send them an, an update and say whether they're on or not. Um, sometimes we can push it back. We do two tours a day, so morning and an afternoon. If we only have one, we can, we're a bit more flexible. But um, um, yeah, quite often. Well, not that often, you know, probably less often than people think that we have to actually cancel the day. I mean, we can operate in through blizzards, snowstorms, but wet, shitty snow. 
foggy, wet days. I'm not interested in being out there. No one else is either. No. <laughs> well, people are just going to hurt themselves. Yeah, but like snowy days, stormy days, it's awesome. You know, we're out there riding powder, getting bogged, digging snowmobiles out, getting the best snow. Mm. And then riding freshies for days after the storm when the resort's completely bombed out. Now we're still doing fresh tracks out there for up to a week after a storm, you know. Right. So, so um, what level of person do you cater for? Um, for like intermediate, strong intermediate onwards. So if if like most of the train we ride is pretty cruisy, you know, you look out from Ruin Castle out to Rocky Knolls and all that stuff, and it's pretty much the same as you know Scott's Ruin, yeah. Big Dipper. There's just no one on it. So if you keep going around that whole face, um, and then on the back side of that is all tree runs in Pretty Valley, and that's a bit more technical because you're in, in not super steep, but just skiing through trees, which can phase a few people. And then we've got Mount Mackay and on all the aspects of that and the back of the summit, which is all tree skiing and more advanced terrain. Um, but uh, we don't have to turn around, turn away too many people. You know, we do a warm-up run just out of the resort and we sell it as being something that if you're happy and comfortable skiing the blues and easy blacks then you'll be have a ball out with us yeah. if you can ski you know scots and ruin ski or snowboard then then you'll be more than happy yeah, with okay. us um, and, and you even, snowboarders as well yeah yeah. Oh yeah yeah heaps of heaps of borders come out um yeah and the steepest runs that we do there's there's an easy run down the down the saddle and ridge of Mackay. so if it's not up if crew are like Look over the edge of Mackay on the south side and go, well, I don't think I can handle that. They can cruise down and then do a second drop with a sled or just ride back down if they need a break. Do uh, Take a ride back down with the snowbills and the drivers and and uh, enjoy a day out anyway. So. so are you out there <coughs> offering any pointers or anything like that? Or yeah, not, not so much technical pointers. Um, more sort of tactics of how to approach a run that you're maybe not comfortable with and especially skiing trees, which a lot of people don't do. You know, the classic saying is remember to look at the spaces, not the places, you know. Mm. So wherever you're looking is where you'll go. So if you're looking at a tree, you'll run into it. <laughs> well, I imagine that people would um, book it because they're hoping to get a bit of Steve Lee. Yeah, and that's that's a part of it for sure. And um, But I've got a good crew, you know, good crew, uh, good crew that, uh, that helped me run it and sort of almost semi-volunteer because they get, they're out there riding as well. So, mm. um, But yeah, like... Yeah, it's my territory out there and, it, and and it's sold as that and sort of pitches that that it's my backyard and somewhere I've skied my whole life. And I mean, I, you know, we were skiing out there at 12, 13 years of age with, with mates dropping these mystical bowls down to road 24. This, you know, mm. the first time we went out there, unbeknownst to anyone, you know, probably would have been grounded for a month if anyone found out. <laughs> but we found our way out there and found these runs that no one was ever on. And, you know, we'd hit road 24 and ski back around to the, to the gate entry of the village and either thumb a ride back up or had a before i was doing this had a few mates that were working on the car park and we'd just ring them and say hey we're about pick to pop up. out so they'd do the pickup shuttle run for us mm. so i got to know the terrain out there really well but it truly well, is your backyard well 100 percent, yeah mm. so i've been skiing out there for Pretty. 40 40 plus years all that terrain and then when i had the snowmobile business we operated out there skated even more I and mean, we'd go with the guys that were working with me in that era we'd um like on full moons, we'd have dinner and then go out and skate under a full moon just for ourselves till five in the morning, you know, do moonlight powder powder nights and stormy nights. And so, yeah, I've utilised that part of the resort um, for fun and for business for a long time. And it's um, it's awesome. Yeah, it's great terrain. And, and a part that 90% of people wouldn't even know existed. Well, they know it exists, but it's amazing how many 
even locals that have been here their whole life have never been out there. You know, like, it's incredible. The crew finally booking with so I've been wanting to do this for 40 years. You know. Well, this morning I was saying I was coming up here and then yeah. the crew in our place were saying, well, we should do that. Yeah. We should book that. Totally, yeah. yeah. And once they do it, they're like, wow. You know? Yeah. It's... um. And part of, the, part of the beauty is it's something that you've sort of looked at for years. big part of the beauty is that you're just with a small group of crew and the sleds take off and you're just standing there watching this run with no one on it. Mm. And down you go. And then the fun of it, you know, there's as much... The way the setup is, it's actually fun going up the hill on the snowmobiles mm. as it is going down. So a lot mm. of people really enjoy that aspect of it. And yeah, and just a lot of people there to ask me questions and, and um, enjoy skiing with me for sure, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Which I enjoy too. So the guiding, you know, back to the start of that question, what I was, how I sort of fell into guiding in one way or another and, and that's because I, I coached for a little bit. I was never keen on ski instructing. I was running our ski club here and running the national program uh, for the Alpine team and Alpine director and did a bit of coaching for a while but I just couldn't handle standing on the side of the hill watching other people ski. So I was never going to be a coach. Mm. I enjoyed being part of the process and development of our young kids and and the sport in general but standing on the side watching people coach i would have ended up being a chronic alcoholic like most, co- most coaches are you know, cause you, when i look at them in the rain and the oh it's hard weather, work it's like, you take your hat off to them yeah, yeah. and there, you know there's not too many super successful ski races that go on to to coach a handful do mm. but most of them were had a passion for it at a young age maybe got injured didn't quite make it whatever they go down that path but to be a full-time coach you you don't get a lot of skiing and you're the first on the hill the last off you you know there's a lot of traveling involved it's tough on family it's um it's a pretty pretty bloody tough gig mm. um and I, I enjoyed it and i enjoyed the process and you know, i was lucky enough to do it at a top end i worked with the u.s ski team and british ski team and you know coach guys to win world cups or part of a group that coached them to win world cups and that's thrilling you know to be at that very point end that um yeah it's not something i could do as a living which i identified pretty quick so the guiding side is great because you're generally skiing with competent riders um they're out there to you know get some fresh terrain and have a good day and and it um then it's gone on to what i'm doing in japan as well so i got a great little setup over there bought a little ski lodge over there five years ago um for a song and it was a hadn't been operated for about 15 18 years so they needed a fair bit of work a lot of work so knuckled down and and uh, got that sorted out and just finished our fourth season operation over there with a little guiding business. And um, so are you doing the same sort of thing, the backcountry too? Yeah, or? not with snowmobiles. It's all alpine touring, so hiking right. okay. and ski, you know, skinning up. Yeah, right. Um, so we do resort side country, backcountry over there, and yeah, you know, there's a lot of days where you're just riding off lifts and you still don't cross the track. So that's pretty nice. Um, um, but there's a lot of a lot of days of, of touring and hiking, which I absolutely love. So, yeah, backcountry, getting away from the resorts and, you know, working out a route and taking That's a good That's why you build. look so fit. Keeps me fit, for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I hike I hike probably 60 days a season over there. And I, I do a fair bit of touring here as well. We've got one program which I'll push a bit more this year. It used to be sort of a spring-level program called 50-50, which is half lifted, half touring. So there's, there's like the south side, southwest side and... A lot of Mackay, you go right down into the creek, um, where we can't get in and out of on the on the sled. So we um, can ski right down in there, which is often beautiful down through the woods. The second half of Mackay is quite often the best snow, 
and then skin out to a pickup point and get lifted back to the top. So you sort of get the best of both. Mm. And I think that's probably something that I'd really like to develop venturing out you know, into the parks and to operate something further afield with, with half touring, half transported, so because of big distances to get out to the good terrain. Yeah. can take you two-thirds of the day just to get there mm. if you're skinning and touring. Um, you know, it's a fair walk out to, out to Spion and Nels um, without a lot of good skiing in between. Um, so, yeah, there's there's hopefully opportunities down the track, so there's a bit of, bit of discussion happening about that at the moment. And, and, that sounds uh, good. Yeah, and just to progress what I've been doing and the knowledge I have of the mountains here and expand... Um, you know that operation out the you know the cross country there's been a great cross country product through the parks for forever since yeah. the park was really started in the, in the mid to late 70s it used to be a cat skiing operation that went out to Mackay and uh sorry out to mount nelson Spion, and run by the by the resort but that got shut down when when the when it became a park yeah right. um but by hook or by crook the cross country skiers have beautifully groomed networks, mm, 70, 80 Ks do. of networks mm. out into the, so that's machine assisted. Mm. Right? So uh, that How would be that my work? main <laughs> argument is if that they can be machine assisted, then why, why can't backcountry skiing happen yeah. out there? But anyway, it's, it's a process to, to work through and I think it'd be pretty exciting and, and a great addition to activities for the park and to this resort and, and uh, be kind of fun to get out to those areas too, mm. which are beautiful there, mate, you know, bigger and better again. We can just start to see Spion now. So the, yeah, if you look through there, from yeah, well, out, out our lounge room window, we look awesome. straight across at Spion, which um, mm. I looked at for a big chunk of my life before I ever got out there. Well, I used to go out with Dad in the early days of SES. Dad, Dad was uh, sort of one of the founders of the search and rescue setup up here. So um, I'd go out as a young tacker on the snowmobiles and sometimes have the skis. Percy Johnson. Hey. <laughs> How are you, mate? Hello. G'day. How's Bruce. it going? Anthony. Hey, Anthony. Just doing a podcast. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, I actually saw um, the young fella, uh, Pat, Pat. Pat, yeah. And he said, oh, just be quiet. You're going to do a podcast. Yeah, yeah. You said, what the hell's a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck off, I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have children. Uh, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, Hello. So you go winter to winter. Hello, kids. I do, and I've been doing that for a bloody long time. Yeah, Winders to Winders uh, is something I've done since I was 14. Yeah. So do I will... you get to stop off in the sun anyway? Yeah, I get some sun in between. And, I, and nowadays that Japan's set up and here's set up, I don't have a lot to do in between. So I've got a couple of months yeah, right. of good downtime where yeah. I go surfing and, and yeah. surfing's a big passion. I was about to ask you yeah. if you've been surfing. Yeah, and I'm, I'm a... You come I'm up a, to me at Byron. Yeah. Is that where you are? Not anymore. Right. <laughs> Bruce has just moved down to the back to the valley. Bruce worked here in the in the eighties. Right. Um, ran Feathertop and was a lifty for a while and catering and different things and been mates forever. So he's um, just dished out of Byron because it's getting too cosmopolitan up there. Looks like <laughs> looks like he's here to cook your lunch. He's a chef, so it's great. Um, before we go, I was you mentioned earlier Buzz Aldrin. Yeah. Do you want to tell us about that dinner? Yeah, so, um, yeah, well, the, it came from being the Inter being 50 years old. And, uh, yeah, I was very fortunate to, to meet Buzz in Vale. Um, at a, at a, I got invited by some friends that, um, that uh, said, yeah, come over to our house for dinner. They're all pilots and stuff. And, and uh, we've got some, you know, just doing a little, little dinner at 
at our house and uh, so I got invited and sat, you know, walked in and like, kind of recognised that dude, you know, and it, this was be 20 years ago, so um, only 30 years after they did it and the question is, you know, did it happen and uh, after that dinner I have no doubt in my mind that the enthusiasm and spark in his eye, tell, right. you know, just talking about it in, a, in an environment just with friends and was amazing just to sit down and um, and uh, for a couple of hours and and uh, and talk about it. So it was a pretty special evening. Um, and when it, you know, we sat down here last week and watched the that six hour thing that on was that was on SBS. Um, what was it called? To the uh, it was a six hour show on on SBS. Um, I didn't see it. Three three two hour mm. episodes of something or other. You know, to the, the, to the moon, or you know, um, and he was a big part of it, talking about it still alive, you know, obviously. And so, yeah, fascinating um, benefit of being where I was in, you know, in the world and mm. getting invited to something like that and uh, being able to sit with him for several hours. So, yeah, they, uh, I think I said in my little uh, post that I've had some adventures in my time, but those guys. That's probably the biggest adventure of mankind, and definitely yeah, mm. puts my adventures to shame. <laughs> well, you've had a few, and I'm really glad that you're yeah. happy to share it. Yeah, it's good to chat. Yeah, mm. and we look out the window with the, with a bit of clearing. We'll be back out there riding backcountry tomorrow, hopefully, and yep. Spion Spion's uh, one of the mo- one, one of the, the dreams. One of the I just spoke to Fergus as one of my boys. Um, yeah, he might once. He's got all his major works finished for HSC. It might come up for a week. Yeah, awesome, October, yeah. Which would be good, oh, end of August. Yeah. But he just mentioned, and it just was one of the most odd things I've ever seen in my whole life. We're all, Fergus and I and my two boys, we'd come down to have a ski. And we're all here, we've been skiing all day, sitting here, looking out there, Bluebird Day, Spion Top in the background, Jay Bay on the telly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Watching the surfing. It was just like, this really happened. Yeah. Oh, the in-between seasons for me are fun. Yeah, I get a couple of months, so we touched on that. I, I, yeah, I, I just go on surf adventures now, so. Cool. Never really got to do the tropics and all that stuff, obviously, when I was racing, but because um, I, talking about back-to-back winters, you know, I did my first international trip when I was 14 in 76, 77, and I've had two two summers since then, two Aussie summers where I haven't skied internationally. So I will crack 100 winters in the next couple of years. Um, That's crazy. Which, yeah, I think by, I think three or four years away, I've got six six or seven to go before I crack 100. So I'm up to sort of mid-90s in winters in my life. Mm. (laughs) Well, I look forward to uh, the 8th of October when we drive down the hill and see the green and head back to Adelaide. It's a nice time, you know, going down and you, when you live here all winter and when you're in snow most of the time there's you know there's not a lot of um your sense of smell when you drop down into the valley it's like mm. wow that's you can smell everything you know it's incredible because it's mm. pretty pristine and and all sort of barren up here you don't get mm. a lot of those nat- natural scents well scents. E- everything's flowering down there september october's just just blooming yeah so that time in between seasons where you get to stop and smell the roses is pretty nice mm. yeah yeah I agree. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Awesome. Cheers. Yeah, Yeah, good to chat. Thank you.